Kia ora, I'm Alex Ashton and this is The Detail. And yes, that's Christmassy music because mere kirehemete, it's that time again. Holidays mean family, food, a, a bit of extra cheer, but they also mean dealing with your family's opinions. And with 2019 shaping up to be one of the hottest years on record, don't be surprised if this little matter comes up. In Climate Watch, a new United Nations report warns the impacts of climate change are increasing and inevitable. The consequences for nature and humanity are sweeping and severe. Our planet's future is in the balance. Antarctica's ice, the Amazon rainforest, Russia's permafrost and ocean currents have all been identified as tipping points in the Earth's system. Today, the scientists that first described them warns the majority of them are now active, showing signs of tipping over. Ah, that old chestnut, the potential end of the world due in large part to the way we treat the planet. But not everyone agrees where to blame, like this guy. I'm not denying climate change, but it could very well go back. You know, we're talking about well, over millions of years. It. They say that we had hurricanes that were far worse than what we just had with Michael. Who says that? They say. You mean well, the people, people say. The people say that in the... Yeah, but what about night? the scientists who say it's worse than ever? Uh, you'd have to show me the scientists because they have a very big political agenda. So to get us through the holidays and relatives who might think along the lines of President Trump, we thought it'd be useful to talk climate myths. Nick Mutsky is a senior lecturer in biological sciences at the University of Auckland. But long before that, I actually worked uh, in the States at a nonprofit called the National Center for Science Education. And that was the only nonprofit in the U.S. that was devoted to defending uh, teaching strong science in the public schools in the U.S. So this was especially the teaching of evolution and the teaching of climate change science. Um, in addition to doing regular research, I've got this whole side of me that's been devoted to uh, battling pseudoscience and trying to improve public awareness of science. What drives pseudoscience, do you think? Oh, what drives it? I think the main thing is inconvenient facts, right? So there are facts that, if true and if you accept them, require some kind of action from you or some kind of change in your um, complacent sort of everyday uh, going along with life. And uh, one way to react to those challenging facts is to try and do something about it. Um, but that can be quite difficult. It can be challenging. And it can hit different people different ways. Um, and uh, and so another route to go, if that is, if some facts are proving inconvenient to you, is to try and deny them. You scare people and you make them make them think that the world's coming to an end or changing to where humans can't live. You, you know, there, there's money in it. There's some other causes for that. One of them, there's I think there's a lot of just contrarianism in people. So if if the dominant view from the top is that this is the way things are, and you've got some objection. Um, there's always some people who will disagree for that. So there's some base level there. But I think the big forces promoting denialism on different science topics are always people who who uh, are inconvenienced in some way by the facts. Okay, so on that note, let's look at a few of the really common denial arguments, I guess you'd call them. Um, the, the big one that seems to come through a lot. The climate's changed before and it'll change again, whether people are here or not. See, it's all just a cycle. That's a common part of the climate change denier argument. And so there's kind of two levels on which it works. One is the everyday weather issue. So, um, you know, it is true the weather changes day to day. You get changes from season to season um, and you get changes year to year. Some winters are colder, some winters are warmer. 
And uh, it's obviously true that those are changing and it's hard to predict, especially more than a few days ahead in detail. The main response there is to note the difference between weather, which is that everyday variability, and climate, which is the long-term averages. And so the important discovery that's been made over the last 50 years is that the averages are creeping up in terms of average temperature around the globe. It changes more in some places. It changes less in other places. A few places have probably gotten colder, but there's many more places getting warmer. There's many more warm temperature records getting broken than cold temperature records getting broken. And so this overall trend is incredibly statistically strong. And so in terms of the climate changing, we know it's changing on that scale. Um, your broader point there is that over geological time, over millions of years, the climate has definitely changed. And we have all kinds of evidence of that. And you can see it in the rock record. If you go out on a geology field trip, you'll see evidence of this. We know, you know, over the scale of tens to hundreds of thousands of, thousands of years, we've had ice ages. So we're currently in a warm period. If we went 15,000 years ago, sea level would have been much lower. Glaciers uh, and ice caps would have been much expanded. You know, all of Canada was basically under an ice sheet. So the climate has changed on that kind of scale. But the point is we started out in kind of a warm period, and now we're exceeding those average warm periods. That, that, that was cyclical over the last few million years, these cold periods followed by warm periods. But the problem we've got now is we're in a warm period naturally, and then we're adding warming uh, forcers, they're called, so climate change gases, carbon dioxide and methane. We're adding those, and we're pushing the temperature up past any of the warm periods over those last few million years. Now, if you go back even further, there are periods that are called global hothouse periods in Earth's history, like during the time of the dinosaurs, for example. And that was when, you know, there were no ice caps. Sea level was much higher. The middle part of North America was underwater. And life survived, right? Life survived that kind of thing. That was uh, by itself not an issue for life, but it would be a radical change in human uh, circumstances, right, if we flooded major parts of continents um, and if we melted all the ice sheets. All of the species uh, that uh, lived in colder regions right, would go extinct, and a lot of other problems would follow. And the problem is we are heading towards that if we keep on the current path. We're heading towards exceeding any natural variability over the last few million years and heading towards that real hothouse Earth situation where we get into a climate regime where there are no cold places. You know, we just have maybe temperate regions towards the poles, and we have an expanded tropics and expanded tropical diseases and all these problems. So the variability is there. Um, the one other point I should make about it is that we know that one of the big drivers of those natural climate change cycles was carbon dioxide, because we can measure the carbon dioxide or indicators of carbon dioxide, and we can see that there's this correlation. So um, there are other things that affect the climate, but that's a big one. Um, and so this gives us one more piece of evidence that, yes, carbon dioxide in releasing it really is an issue um, it has a causal relationship with our current temperature increase. Right. Yeah. And, and a, a very, very condensed version of that is that, sure, natural variability does happen, but we're definitely making it worse and we're pushing it farther than it's been pushed before. Yeah. And I, I think, yeah, a good way to say it is that um, we are pushing temperatures past any natural variability in recent uh, geologic history. Gotcha. Next one. There's no scientific consensus that we're making the problem worse. The experts are split. Plus, 500 scientists wrote to the UN saying it wasn't a problem. So I'm with them. There's, there's a few things to think about when, when people present you with a list of climate change skeptics or evolution skeptics. Uh, this is a tactic that gets used a lot. And the number can sound impressive, but it is worth thinking about. Although there aren't that many scientists in the world, there are 
hundreds of thousands of scientists, even in subfields, there's probably more like millions of scientists in the world. Um, and so you want to ask, when you see a list like that, you want to ask, first of all, how many of those people are real experts in climate change, for example, instead of just being you know, meteorologists, TV weather people, you know, those people are not necessarily actually educated on climate change, these long-term global statistical uh, patterns. Also, they're scientists and scientists. It is somewhat common in evolution and climate change for um, the people trumpeting their skeptics' credentials to really be well outside of those areas. So people who have engineering degrees, there are a lot of smart engineers in the world, but they're not always uh, trained in these specific domains of science. It was very common in the evolution world for um, evolution skeptics to be engineers or chemists or things that were quite remote, you chemists. know, from, from uh, evolution. Yeah, and it's it's because you can get well-trained as a scientist or an engineer um, and never get exposed to any of the basics in these other fields. In biology, if you study evolution, you actually do get some climate change uh, experience because evolution over millions of years, you have to think about the climate and what's changing it over millions of years to understand the current biodiversity. So um, so we actually learn a little bit of it. Um, and then I've got some extra experience because I've worked on these pseudoscience issues. But um, back on the topic of a, a climate change denier list, right? Uh, it's worth thinking about how many of those people uh, have real expertise in the topic. And then it's worth thinking about how big would the list be if you got uh, scientists to sign up in favor of a point of view. And uh, you can usually it would be hundreds, thousands of times bigger. Um, and in some cases, this has actually been done. There will be online petitions and you'll get tens of thousands of scientists signing it. More than 11,000 scientists from around the world have declared a climate emergency. A scientific paper signed by the group declares a climate crisis is underway and accelerating. One way we dramatized this on the issue of evolution um, when we worked at the National Center for Science Education was this, uh, we had a thing called Project Steve. And we said, okay, the evolution people have a list of 100 people who are skeptical about evolution, we asked ourselves, uh, how many scientists could we get with the first name Steve or some cognitive Steve like Stephanie? And uh, we ended up getting a much longer list just of scientists named Steve who supported strong evolution education. So I don't know if anyone's tried that with climate change science, but it would be um, similar to that. Um, there was a study, sort of a meta-analysis uh, recently of climate change papers and how many supported that consensus that the earth is warming and that humans are causing it. Um, versus how many don't. And the number that came out of that was that 97% of papers support the consensus. Um, more recently, there was a, a study of those 3% that disagreed and asked how many of them had correct analyses. People actually dug into the analyses and they found that most of those papers had problematic analyses. There is always some disagreement. Scientists, you know, we talked about contrarian and contrarianism earlier. Um, there are always a few scientists who are contrarians on any topic, you know, so you can find people um, especially if you're if you have payment, you know you can find people who will um, uh, object to any consensus. You know there are people who object to cell theory. There are people who object to atomic theory. Um, these are all well established scientific theories. So you can find a few, but just because you find a few doesn't mean that there's not a consensus, right? A consensus is the dominant prevailing view in the scientific community. It's what gets taught in introductory science classes. It's what's in the textbooks, and it is affirmed not just by an opinion poll of scientists, but by commissions of groups like the U.S. National Academy of Sciences or the Royal Society. These groups of top scientists, you know, will rev review topics of public interest and uh, develop, you know, teaching recommendations, develop policy recommendations. And so these are the, sort of the blue ribbon commissions of science. You started um, touching on this one in a, an earlier answer, actually, but I, I will ask it as a separate myth. You know what, I'm not sold on climate change because the record scientists talk about are completely unreliable. 
Show me some actual evidence. What do you oh, say right. to that one? Well, so again, the, the, to get into the details, you'd have to discuss which records you're talking about. The shortest term records are, um, you know, actual weather station data that go back maybe 100, 150 years. Um, and there can be debates about the details of some of those because we didn't have such accurate thermometers 100 years ago, that kind of thing. My understanding of that topic is that uh, uh, you can account for a lot of these issues. And anyway, even if you just take the raw averages of everything, you get a signal of warming uh, climate. Um, and really, most of that climate change has happened you know, in the last 50 years. And so it's not like changing a few of the temperature records from the 1800s would radically change anything. So if the issue is just that weather station data, even just a raw average, you get it. You can get a better estimate of what's happening with various complex statistical analyses, but you can just take the raw averages and get that uh, warming signal. If you get to paleoclimate and the, the context over millions of years, then you get into a really fascinating area of all the different geological signals of how climate changes over time. Uh, one useful point to make is that you can do independent checks by taking different, we call them climate proxies. So it'll be things like you know, uh, air bubbles in ice cores or uh, the percentages of different molecules and elements in, in the sediment on the seafloor. And you can use these different indicators to get a sense of how climate is changing and get an overall signal. So the point with science, right, is that you try not to rely on just a single data source. All of these things are reinforcing and you use different data sets to check against each other. So, um, and similarly, that's how you check climate models. So, um, you're not relying on any one thing, and you get this sort of weave of different facts and different lines of evidence that when they all line up become very, very powerful. So that's what's happened with the story of climate science over the last few decades. And the last one I'll run by you, um, it's not so much a denial thing as such, but it's this idea that... Look, maybe climate change is a problem, but even so, New Zealand's too small to do anything. Without the US or China leading the way, there's really no point. Ah, so that's a great argument. And that really shifts from a purely scientific argument to a, a real cultural, political kind of discussion. And I think that is really the most important argument to have. The science, in some ways, is the simple question. There's many details you can learn, but the basic facts are CO2 is going up. We know humans have increased CO2 and other global warming gases. We know the basic physics behind global warming. Uh, we know that uh, those gas molecules absorb and radiate energy in a way that makes a blanket that warms up the atmosphere. Um, that's all pretty simple, actually. Um, the complex questions are what do we do about it? And, uh, and that's really a discussion where everyone, not just the scientists, have a voice. In terms of what to do, I think, I mean, in some sense it is true if the U.S. and China don't get on board and change things, then the relative impact of a place like New Zealand is small. However, that's not really the discussion we're in. We're currently in a situation where really, despite climate change treaties and things, we're not really doing very much yet to change um, the uh, uh, amount of emissions that are coming out. So what we need is we need examples of successes where we reduce emissions and yet maintain the other things we want to maintain, like our economy and our standard of living. And if you want a place that really seems like it would have potential for leading the way on that, New Zealand would be that sort of place. Um, it's got much more responsible politics, I think, on average than, than other countries do. You know, it's got a real knowledge economy. There's a lot of smart people in New Zealand um, that can help lead the way on this. And it's got an abundance of natural resources, including hydro uh, power and things like that. So I think there's a lot of potential in New Zealand. And you could maybe compare to Australia, which really ought to be a leader in this area also, but so far has not been, probably mostly because of the coal lobby and the sort of rhetoric around that. I mean, if you want to talk about a place that, you know, 
is on the edge climate-wise in terms of it will be impacted first as the climate warms up, um, as we're seeing with all the fires right now, and a place that's got abundant solar resources, right? You would think Australia would be the leader in that. So I think New Zealand, as New Zealand has done on many issues, New Zealand could be leading the way in this. Um, and it, so those issues are complex. And what the big countries need is they need examples of this working so that either national policies or in the U.S., each state can develop its own policy. And some states are much further ahead of others. California, for example, is, is uh, uh, trying to make a lot of progress in that area. Um, and so examples can be great. And so New Zealand can have a big impact there in terms of just showing some leadership in the area. You just mentioned the, the Sydney fires that we're seeing at the mm. moment. Fire activity across the state has again increased this afternoon with flames threatening towns and communities. Three bushfires burning north of Sydney have joined to create what's been dubbed a mega blaze. And I know people have talked about the link between the fires and the changing climate. I'm not going to take back my comments. Comments attacking the Greens for linking the bushfires with climate change. It is disgraceful, it is disgusting and I'll call it out every time. Calling them... Inner city raving... Tempers fraying on both sides. The only raving lunatics are the people who are saying we don't have to worry about the climate crisis. How do people continue to deny the existence of climate change when there are things happening in front of us? All right. Well, let's see. I I would actually be a little bit sympathetic on that one. So the difficulty with with assigning any particular disaster or any particular weather event to climate change is that it's really a one-off case. Right. And there are individually, you know, there have been fires in Australia forever. Um, there have been hurricanes forever. You know, these things happen a lot. And usually they have a certain frequency, uh, but then every century you'll have a one in a hundred years event that's particularly bad. And so if you want to uh, look at natural variability, if a scientist was presented with one example like that, they would say, well, you got one example. Who knows what the cause was? It could have just been a bad year. The real argument is the statistical one that says across an area over decades is the rate increasing, right? It, or is the severity increasing? And there's pretty good arguments, at least for some of these disasters, that that is uh, what's going on. So th- that's the real scientific part of the argument. What's the best way for me to talk to someone who has an opinion not based in fact, basically. How do I try and convince them in a way that's not going to ruin Christmas? (laughs) You know, so my short recommendation there is um, uh, I think it's fine to have these discussions with family and friends. Um, They can be difficult simply because you have a strong relationship with them and you don't want to mess that up over over some argument over politics or or science. so that all dep- how you deal with that depends on your personal relationship. Some families are, are great at having debates without getting angry. Other families are not. If you're in a situation where you feel like uh, you are – the discussion would be delicate and you might hurt feelings you know, by, by really fighting over an issue, my recommendation is buy those folks a book for Christmas. You know, buy a book on climate change science and give it to them and say, you know, this is a complex discussion. There's a lot to discuss. Um, you know, often you yourself won't be an expert – and so you might not even feel confident getting into the real details of some issue, but uh, buy them a book. And my experience on the evolution issue especially has been if you can get people to start reading about a topic and get them interested in it, that starts to balance out all these cultural misunderstandings or information that they've heard. They start to realize you know, that it's much more complex than they initially thought. And often if you get them reading six months, a year later, they'll convert to the other side. That's the detail for today. I'm Alex Ashton. 
The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz, made possible by the RNZ NZ On Air Innovation Fund. Hit the subscribe button to stay across the detail every day. And if you're on Apple, please leave a rating, as it helps other listeners find us. This episode was engineered by Blair Stagpole and produced by Alexia Russell. Thanks to Nick Mutsky from the University of Auckland. Mā te wā. Thank you.